amazing. I, I want to, hey, COVID has not been kind to churches in attendance, and so I want to thank these families for doing their part uh, in growing Grace Marietta. This is our strategy right now, is we may lose people to COVID that are not going to our church anymore, but we're gaining them by having babies. So whatever y'all are doing, may God bless you, and may you continue to increase and multiply, right? That's in Genesis. We can say that, yeah. Uh, I'm so glad that you're here today. We've been working through the book of Nehemiah, and originally when I looked at Mother's Day in Nehemiah, I was like, there's not a lot of mom stuff in Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah's a dude. Uh, Nehemiah doesn't mention his mom anywhere in uh, in all the chapters of Nehemiah. Uh, And so we kind of aligned Nehemiah chapter 5 to land on Mother's Day, which is kind of weird because this passage has nothing to do with mothers. Uh, It's about social justice. But here's what started to happen in my mind. As I started to think about this, I started to think that there is no one in my life who taught me to fight for what's right than my mother. Anybody with me on that? That my mother not only instructed me on what's true and good and right and how to discern what's true and good and right, but also taught me when to speak and when to stay silent. Taught me how, when to love, and when to use my voice to fight, and when to step back. My mom taught me all of those things. And so I'm here this morning incredibly, incredibly grateful for a legacy of godly women in my life who taught me how to preach the gospel. I'm incredibly grateful for my grandmothers. I was thinking about my grandmothers today. Noni Taylor and Edna Hardman. Both of them have passed on, but they are women who prayed for me, who, who I can remember going to their house and them just putting hands on my shoulder and just like saying random prayers for me in the middle of like, I'm, I'm like, Grandma, I'm just swimming in the pool. And she's like, no, we're going to pray right now. Right? We're going to pray those demons out of you. Like, I don't know what she was doing, but, but there was these prayer times. I, I'm so grateful for my mother and my mother-in-law who love the Lord, and I'm so thankful for my wife who, who loves my children and cares for them. Like, if you have a mom or a legacy of faith, we have a lot to be grateful for today. And so today we're going to talk about social justice, and it's a difficult topic, uh, but we're going to talk about it because I don't know that there's anybody who taught me more about social justice uh, than my mom. Not long ago, about six to seven months ago, over 4,000 pastors signed a document that said social justice is not only inappropriate, but it's dangerous. Here's what it says in that document. It says there's an onslaught of dangerous and false teachings that threaten the gospel, misrepresent scripture, and lead people away from the grace of God and Jesus Christ. And this was signed by over 4,400 pastors. Not surprisingly, all of them were men. And here's the question that I started asking. Because in our Bibles, in many of your Bibles, if you turn to Nehemiah chapter 5, the header in the Bible will actually say these two words, social justice. And so the question that I start asking is like, why are there some in the church who, who, who see the call for biblical justice as a call for us to rise up and be faithful and to preach the gospel? And why do some of it, some people see it as a heresy and something that we should be afraid of? And so when we think about dealing with culture, because 
the, the church and the world have always had an interesting relationship, right? There's always been culture wars going on, and the church has its place in culture, but it's always been difficult for the church to figure out what is our place? Where do we speak? When do we not speak? What do we stay silent about? What do we speak loudly about? All of those things have been debates that have been going on since the early church, right? We can look in scripture and see where these debates take place over and over and over again. And there's brilliant thinkers who have written about this. Stanley Hauervoss, uh, Richard Niebuhr, recently Andy Crouch have written amazing books about how the church should engage in culture and how the church should interact in culture. One of the frameworks that I've always taught, and this is a really great framework for parents. If you're a parent and you're out there and you're thinking about, like, how do I teach my kids to interpret the gospel? How do I help them faithfully understand culture and the Bible? I think one of the best ways to interpret how we deal with culture is this framework, and it comes from, from, from Richard Niebuhr, and it's this. There are things that we receive from culture, and we call them good, right? Like Mother's Day. That's good, right? It's a good holiday. We can celebrate that. We can enjoy that with it. There's, there's, there's certain songs that are just good songs, right? They, they, they may not come from straight from Scripture, but they're just like you hear them and you're like, oh, that's uplifting. Like, that's, that's what our world needs. Like, I can get down with that. And you get your head bobbing a little bit and you're like, this is good. And on a day like today, when you're driving out of the parking lot, you roll down the windows and you pump up that song a little bit and you receive it and just say, this is good. There are also things in culture that we have to reject. There are things in culture that are contrary to what Scripture teaches us. There are things in Scripture that are, that are evil and that are hurtful and that are harmful and that will hurt others and will hurt us. And so we have to stand and be able to reject certain things in culture and say, no, 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 no. That is not the Word of God. That's not faithfulness to Scripture. That's not what we believe in. That's not what's true and just and good and noble and right and pure. It's not from the fruits of the Spirit, so we're going to reject this thing. And then there are things in culture that we redeem. We say, yes, but, right? So we say, yes, we affirm this part of the story that you're telling, but we also say there's something bigger here to add. And so we redeem it. We say, we're going to reframe the conversation. We're going to name what's good in it, but we're also going to name the biblical framework around that. There are certain things that sometimes we call evil that aren't really evil. They're just things. Money isn't in itself evil. Can it be used for evil? Oh, yeah. Well, we're about to read about how it can be, right? Money can absolutely be used for evil, but it's not in itself, in its essence, evil. I've seen money used for great good, right? I've seen the generosity of people who drive the kingdom forward because of their giving and because of their sacrificial generosity and because of the finances. I, I met some guy recently who said, I'm a kingdom entrepreneur, and my goal is to make as much money as I possibly can. And anytime somebody says that, my, I, I kind of back up like, oh, well, you know. I don't know. I don't know. That's our goal. But then he said this, because I want to give generously to as many kingdom endeavors as I possibly can. And I was like, I got a church you could come check out. All right. Uh, <laughs> I, I, money is neutral, right? But we redeem it by using it for the things that the Father would call us to use it for. And so we receive, we redeem, and we reject. There's been a lot of times, as my kids, particularly when they were young, are watching a television show or were watching something, and, and I would stop the show and say, all right, receive, redeem, or reject what's happening on the TV show right now. 
Like, what's going, let's, let's teach our kids to interpret culture. Let's teach them to name. Like, this is something that we receive as good, and we thank the Lord that culture's saying the same thing as, bi- as the Bible, and we're like, yes, Lord. There's things that we reject, and I'm like, wait a minute, I'm not so sure about this one. Right? I think we've got to step away from this one. And then there's things that we redeem. We, we, we change the framework for a biblical framework. But oftentimes, our imagination in the church, God bless us, is to always go to where? Reject. We just reject everything that's from culture. And I hear people say, like, well, that's just worldly. That's just of the flesh. That's not, that's, that's not something that's here. And, 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 and so we automatically jump to, to rejection. And, and we've been too quick to reject culture before we think about could we actually receive and redeem it. And so think about music, right? Music is beautiful. But I, music can also be awful. Think about the internet, Right? The internet can do a lot of good in this world, but the internet is also a place where a lot of brokenness and dangerous and terrible things take place. Money is the same way. And so, so, so when I look at, at these pastors who signed this document, my, my, my heart turns a little feisty. I, I'm a little feisty in these kinds of things, and I get a little irritated, and I get a little worked up, and I realize it's just 4,000 pastors, and there's a whole lot more than 4,000 pastors in the United States. But when I hear somebody say, social justice is not the gospel, I say there's a couple problems with it, and the problems start with this, the Bible. They start right here in the Bible. There is ample scriptural evidence that demonstrates God's concern for social justice, for the poor and the powerless. There is ample evidence in scripture that says injustice anywhere actually causes the Lord to be angry. Oppressive conditions to anyone actually turns the Lord's heart in such a way that he's frustrated and calls his people to step into this. We can look at Amos chapter 5, verse 24, Micah 6, 8, Psalms 103, 6, Isaiah 10, 1, Luke 1, 52 through 53, or Luke 4, 18. We could go through all of those passages, and I could preach all of those passages right now, which is interesting because those start at the beginning of the Old Testament and go all the way through through Jesus, where God is speaking through his word about the importance and the value of social justice. And I don't want to dive deeply into my concerns about this and why some pastors are fighting against justice and equality and other matters. But what I want to ultimately say is we cannot just preach the gospel. We have to live the gospel. And so over the last few year, few months in COVID, the last year, I, I've, I've met with more people who have said to me, Pastor, why are we talking about race? Why can't you just preach the gospel? And every time, you know what I say to them? Every time I talk about race, I am preaching the gospel. Every time I talk about oppression, every time I talk about social injustice, every time we talk about these issues, we are preaching the gospel. The problem number two is Jesus. Right? If the first problem with believing that social justice isn't aligned with the gospel is the Bible, the second problem is Jesus himself. Luke chapter 11, verse 42, Jesus says this. Listen to this. He doesn't say, hey, Pharisees, just preach the gospel. Hey, Pharisees, leaders of the church, leaders of the law, don't just, just go preach a sermon and stop talking about all this stuff. He actually says this. Woe to you, Pharisees. Because you give God a tenth of your mint rue and all the garden herbs, but you neglect what? Justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. That's Jesus, guys. That's Jesus saying, 
You've forgotten one thing. What have you neglected? You've neglected, let's say it together, justice. That's what you've neglected. Matthew chapter 25, verse 35. Jesus is speaking to a crowd, and he says this. For when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. He doesn't just say, listen, when I was sick, you know what I needed? I needed a really good sermon. When I was poor and naked, and then just things were happening to me, you know what I needed? I needed a pastor who would just stand up there and preach some fire out of Leviticus. He says, no, I need you to be the hands and feet. I need you to go. I need you to clothe. I need you to love. I need you to serve. I need you to do all of these things. And here's what's happened in our culture. We have turned everything into a meme, right? We don't know how to do dialogue anymore. We know how to do sentences. We know how to do declarations. And because of that, what we create is we create these things called false dichotomies. A false dichotomy is any situation where two alternative points of view are presented as the only two options. So what these pastors are doing when they're saying social justice is not the gospel, what they're doing is they're saying that the only way that we proclaim the gospel is to preach it. And, and here's the truth. It's a false dichotomy. We can both preach the truth of the word over and over again every week, and we can also go out and we can live that word every single week as we go into our communities. Can I get an amen? It's a false dichotomy, and we've created all of these false dichotomies all around these issues so that we don't have to deal with the issue and so that we don't have to deal with ourselves. That's what's really scary. Because we don't want to deal with the fact that there is injustice, not just in the world, but there's injustice in my own heart. That there's brokenness and that there's sin and that there's the ability to power up and use my power to dominate others. That there's sin of bigotry inside all of our hearts. There's sin of oppression inside all of our hearts. And because we don't want to deal with that, it's easy for us to listen to a sermon and not deal with our own actual hearts. And, 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 and if my mother was here right now, my mother would say, Ben Hardman, deal with your heart. Right? I can't tell you how many times I would go to my mom and I'd be like, Mom, I'm so fired up. I'm upset about this. And this friend did this. And this person did this. And this person did this. And you know what my mom would always say? It was so annoying. She'd always say, deal with yourself. You can't fix everybody else. You can't fix everybody else's heart. You know whose heart you can fix is yours. And so start with you. At Grace Marietta, guys, we're committed to not only preaching the gospel, but to living it out. And by living it out, it means we stand for the oppressed. It means we repent of the sins of injustice. And not just preaching the gospel sometimes allows us to stay silent on things that need to be heard. Uh, over the past year, uh, I, I, I've been really convicted over the fact that I've been silent about things I shouldn't have been silent with. That I've spent time in my ministry being more afraid of how people in my church will respond when I preach the truth than actually preaching the truth. I've been so afraid of people leaving and running away that I've stepped back and failed to stand in places that I should have stood. And so if you think I've gotten a little feistier this year, I have. Because the Lord told me to. And I've been so convicted that I, I found this prayer by the, the president of Denver Seminary. 
And it's a prayer about race, which our, our culture has been filled with race issues over the last few years, which are really close and particularly to my heart, um, not only because of my loved ones, but because of my family. And so in these spaces, I, I, I've just realized I need to repent. And this prayer is something I've gone back to over and over and over again. And I want to read it to you here this morning. And then we're going to jump into Nehemiah chapter 5. It says, have mercy on me, O Lord. For I've blinded my eyes in spite of clear evidence of deeply embedded racism all around me. I've looked the other way. Too many have died. Too many have suffered. Too many have been locked out and cast aside. There's too many indignities, too many injustice, and still I chose to look the other way. Have mercy on me, Lord. I've hardened my heart, believing the lie that blacks have the same opportunity as whites. I could not allow myself to admit that my life was shaped as much by racism as theirs. Mine to benefit and theirs to harm. But it was, it is, and it will continue to be. And I've cared too little, and I've grieved too little. Have mercy on me, O Lord. For I've silenced my tongue. My voice hasn't been raised in prophetic rebuke and anger. My feet have not stepped out for justice alongside of those who have more courage than me. And in my silence, I have become an accomplice to bigotry. Forgive me, O Lord, for I've sinned against you and against those who suffer the evils of racism. Indifference has smothered my soul and snuffed out fleeting impulses for reconciliation. So I ask for your forgiveness, and I will appropriately seek the forgiveness of others. Empower me, O Lord, for I need your strength to step beyond blindness, indifference, and fear. I need to step towards those whom I've sinned against. And I make no grandiose promises or plans today, for I know how easily these plans can be made and forgotten. But this I know, I cannot be the same, and I will not be the same. Amen. That's been where my heart's been at the last year, is recognizing the problem in me. Naming that I've been afraid to speak up. And so when we got here at Nehemiah chapter 5, I, I had this little fear of, oh, we're going to have a lot of visitors that day because of the baby dedication. But thanks to the power of God, I'm going in. <laughs> Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1. Let's actually, yeah, let's go verse 1. It says, now there arose a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and daughters, we are many so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. And there were those who said, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of this famine. And there were those who said, we've borrowed money for the king's taxes on our fields and our vineyard. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children, and their children. So listen to this. This is the important part right here. Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not within our power to help. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, this will take you right back to the slavery practices of Egypt. This will take you right back to how God's people got enslaved originally. Because here's what happened. Famine hit the land. Remember this, Joseph? And who had the famine? Who had the money? Who had everything? Joseph had stored it up in Egypt. And so God's people didn't have food. And when you're people that don't have food, you start by selling what you have. So they sold their homes, and they sold their vineyards, and they sold their cattle, and they sold their land. And, and, then the, so, and this was like a, a five-year-long process, right? They would sell one thing off at a time to survive that year. Right? you got to think, this is an agrarian culture, right? This is a culture that's based on agriculture and based on the harvest and based on what your fields can actually produce. And so when you sell your fields and sell your vineyards and sell your cattle and sell your animals, when you sell all of those things, you don't have food anymore. 
And so they're stuck in this place where they don't have food anymore. And so when they don't have food anymore, what do they do? They sell their children to Egypt. They sell their children into slavery. And the people of Egypt, the slaves in Egypt grew and grew and grew and multiplied and multiplied and multiplied. But it's all built on a financial structure that upholds oppression and allows oppression to happen. That's why the Old Testament is filled with things like the year of Jubilee. It's filled with with moments of gleaning from the field and sharing what you have, sharing your first fruits with the poor and giving a 10% of what you own to others. All of these things are integral parts of the Old Testament because they're trying to avoid the financial structures that upheld the the, the awful part of slavery that was happening in, in Scripture. And so here's what's happened. They've been rescued from that. Right? Moses came. Let my people go. Remember this? Right? They all came out. They went through the river. They went to the promised land. They fought through the promised land. They won the promised land. Then they, then they were Egypt. They were this giant nation. They were the ones who had the wealth and had the power. And the oppressors, be, the, the oppressed became the oppressors. They began to hold slaves. All kinds of things started to happen. They began to be the military power and coordinators of all these things in their time. And so God says, no, 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 no. That's not how we're going to live. You're going into exile. So Babylon comes, takes everything over. Now they're returning back home, and as they return home, they're in the same situation they were before. And because the oppressive mentality of Egypt is still in the hearts of God's people, they are activating on themselves the same policies of Egypt. Does this make sense? So now there are people who don't have anything. They're trying to rebuild the walls. Nehemiah is gathering everybody. We're going to rebuild. We're going to rebuild. We're going to rebuild. And these people are like, yeah, but we got a little bit of a problem over here. We're hurting. And notice what Nehemiah doesn't do. He doesn't preach a sermon. He doesn't say to them, you know what? We got to build this wall, guys. We can't be distracted. He doesn't say, you know what, you got to get your house in order and then come to the church and come and hang out with us. Nehemiah actually begins by sitting and listening to the problems of his people. Justice begins with listening and with empathy. Justice always begins with a place of listening and empathy. I'm going to sit with people who are hurting and I'm going to hear their stories. And I'm not going to try and respond to their stories. I'm not going to interpret culture for them. I'm not going to tell them what their experience is. I'm going to sit with them, and I'm going to actually listen to their stories. And if I could speak for the white church, we have been really poor in listening to our black brothers and sisters and hearing their stories. We've been really poor at empathy and hearing and inviting them into a safe place. We created a lot of these spaces over the last year for the brothers and sisters in our community to actually share with us the pain and the hurt that they're experiencing, to share with us how they're interpreting what's going on in culture. And here's the the theme that's always come out every time. Right before they're about to speak to somebody in our community, they say this to me, Pastor, I'm I'm a little scared. I'm afraid to tell my story right now. Because I've told my story to rooms full of white people before who have not listened to me. Because I've told my story before to groups of people who've not listened to how I've been oppressed and how this is hurting. So I want to give you five really quick ways that we listen well. The first is that we offer our complete attention. Put your phone down. I tell my children, be with the humans, right? Sit at a table with somebody. Like, I I know that there are a lot of keyboard warriors out there, and it's super fun to type something in social media, and it makes you feel good, right? I just got them. I put that meme up there. I did it. 
You're not really changing anything. But you know what can change the world? is sitting at the table. Sitting at the table with people you disagree with. Sitting at the table who people, with people who you don't understand. Sitting at the table and listening uh, to, to, to the stories of what's going on in each other's hearts and, 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 and trying to find a place of peace and a place of reconciliation. Uh, the second thing is nonverbal reading. Pay attention to the speaker's emotions. Pay attention to the question that's going on behind the question. Uh, it's interesting. Interrogators have learned that your body can't lie even when your mouth is. And so when you're speaking about pain, sometimes your body cannot lie when you're speaking about that pain, although your mouth can. And so pay attention to pain, pay attention to cues, pay attention to body language, and pay attention to your body language as you're communicating with somebody. Are you immediately getting defensive? Are you immediately in your mind jumping to your argument, your five reasons why this isn't true or this shouldn't happen? Or are you actually just listening? Because here's the thing about Nehemiah. Nehemiah has a big job to do here important work. He's rebuilding the walls. He's been paid by King Artaxerxes to do this big, giant thing, and this is not a distraction for him. This is actually the work that he's called to do, and so we can't treat these stories as if they're distractions to us. Third is to ask questions. One of the things that we train in here is compassionate curiosity. What's the most compassionately curious question you can ask when somebody shares their heart with you? What's the most compassionate thing you can think of to ask? What's the most curious thing that you can ask? Fourth is just plain listen. Listen over time, not just once. Listen over time to, to, to what's going on in our world. And number five is be silent. Silence is empathy. And so be silent in the space of ease. And then lastly is to follow up. Continue to say to, to, to follow up and have more conversations and more conversations and more conversations. Uh, because of my side job, I work with a lot of pastors. And so I do a lot of training for pastors all around the world. And, and I've been a part of two discussions in the last few weeks that have broken my heart. The first was a room full of women who are leaders and pastors in different movements who were sharing some of their struggles as a woman pastor. One of the things that one of the women started to share was, was the, the fun of mansplaining, uh, like how every time she comes up with an idea, somebody tries to explain it to them. Uh, the other thing she talked about was how she has to consciously walk in a room and help make sure that somebody else thinks her idea is their idea. And I sat and I listened to that. And I listened to all of these stories of the challenges of being a woman in leadership and I recognize that's not my experience. I don't have things mansplained to me very often. I don't, I don't have to pretend like something's Douglas's idea so that we can get it through. I don't have to do these things. And so the only thing I could say to them is, I'm so sorry that that's been your experience. I sat in a room with a bunch of pastors of color who started talking to me about the, the, the pain they've experienced from the white church. The hurt they've experienced when their brothers feel like this is not an issue that needs to be addressed or needs to be talked about. I, I sat and listened to them as they told stories of how they feel like they have to code switch every time they get in a room with me. And they have to clean up their language and they have to dress a certain way just to get an audience with me. I listened to their stories of how they've been pulled over by the police over and over and certain things have happened in their life with police officers. And I said, I, none of that's ever happened to me. I don't have to code switch. 
I don't have to dress a certain way. I just walk into a room and I, I'm me. I haven't had those experiences with the police. And so here's what we can do. We can argue with those experiences or we can actually listen with empathy. And Nehemiah chose to listen with empathy. That's where, that's, where, that's where all of this starts. The second thing is that injustice should actually lead us to righteous anger. Can I get an amen? Like it should, the things that make God angry should make us angry. And listen to what Nehemiah says. After he listens, right? He takes time to listen. He takes time to hear the story. In verse 6, it says, I was very angry when I heard the outcry of these words. I was angry. I was mad. I was furious. There is such thing as a righteous anger. There is unrighteous anger, but there is also righteous anger. Now, I wish, because we're outside, I can't show you this video, but I wish I could. So I'm going to invite all of you to go home and get on YouTube tonight, because you, I promise you, you'll thank me later. Uh, there is a video, and at every Halloween, Jimmy Kimmel does this little experiment. Some of you will know about it. Jimmy Kimmel does this experiment where he has parents video them saying to their poor children, I ate all of your Halloween candy. Hey, how many of you have seen this video? It's amazing, right? It is, I don't, I feel a little perverted because there's a lot of crying in it and a lot of, maybe I need to receive, redeem, reject with something like this. But, but in the middle, this, this, it's, they're hysterical because the parent will stand up in front of the child and they'll say, hey, I ate all your Halloween candy. I'm so sorry. And some of these kids will just instantly start throwing fists, right? Some of them will just fall on the ground and just major tantrums. Some of them will start screaming. A few of them curse. Like there's all of these things that go on with these children. And then there's some of these sweet little kids. One of the kids, I'll never forget, one of these kids in the middle of it, the mom says, I ate all your Halloween candy. And he just gets this terribly sad face. (laughs) Like he's just completely broken. And he says, were you really hungry, mommy? <laughs> she said, yes. And he said, okay. But that wasn't very kind. <laughs> and he walks off, right? It's this beautiful thing. And, and what, what's funny about that, I was watching that this week because I think it's funny. Uh, but as I was watching, I was thinking like, even in children, there is righteous anger and unrighteous anger. There is the injustice of my candy has been eaten. <laughs> and there are responses that are biblical and that are true. And there's others that are hard. In Psalms chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, David says, Be angry, but do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer the right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There's a way that we can be angry and not sin. That's called righteous anger. Righteous anger seeks restoration. Unrighteous anger seeks revenge. Righteous anger is a response to sin and injustice. Unrighteous anger is a response to not getting what you want. Righteous anger rebels against rebellion. Unrighteous anger rebels against God. Righteous anger hates sin. Unrighteous anger is sin. Righteous anger has a concern for protecting others. Unrighteous anger has a concern with protecting pride. Our pain can only be endured when it's actually embraced. Allie talked about this last week when she talked about lamenting. Lamenting is the seed that grows our hearts. When our hearts are broken, we actually step into action. And so this idea of righteous anger, it's this idea that there is pain in me that can actually be endured. And because it's endured, it can be embraced and it can become something beautiful. But I have to sit in that. I have to name the emotions. Fellas in the room, guys, we are not good with emotions. Can I get an amen? I don't, the only emotion I'm allowed to feel as a man 
is angry and hungry. Right? Those are the only two. I don't know if hungry is even emotion, but for men, I think it is. Right? Like those are the two things. There's another one that I won't mention, but there's three that we're allowed to experience. Right? That's all we're allowed to experience as men is those kind of emotions. So when we go through this emotional cycle, what happens is we can't name what we're actually feeling. This is where my wife is such a gift to me. She actually is able to name what I'm feeling before I can. I told this story before, but it, uh, about a year ago, I, I had had a really, really difficult week. It was one of those weeks where everything at the church went wrong, everything in my business went wrong. It was just frustrating. Everything was going sideways, and I was just completely irritated. And it was like a Wednesday, and I called her, and she was at work, and I said, babe, I'm staying home. I'm sick. And she's like, what's going on? I said, I don't know. My stomach hurts. I'm tired. I'm staying home. I'm really sick. And she said, honey you're not sick, you're sad. And I was like, dang it. <laughs> like, why do you always know this stuff? I just want to be sick. Can I just say I'm sick? And she's like, no, you actually need to deal with your sadness. You're sad over what happened this week. You actually need to sit in that. You actually need to pay attention to that. We have a weird relationship with our emotions in the church, don't we? Because we do two things with it. One, we let it drive, right? So the moment I get angry, I come out fist blaring and I come out fighting. Or the moment I get sad, I just jump into a deep depression and just fall there. But what we, what, or the other thing that we do is we stuff our emotions. We either let it drive or we stick it in the trunk and pretend like it's not there. And, and we're just, I, I'm going to stuff all of my emotions. I'm going to pretend like I'm not angry. I'm going to pretend like I'm not sad. I'm going to pretend like I'm not frustrated. I'm going to stuff all of that down there. And what scripture actually teaches us is that we name our emotions and we surrender our emotions. So we name them to the Father. Lord, I'm angry right now, but I'm surrendering my anger to you because I want your discernment on how I respond to my anger. I'm sad right now, Lord, and I'm surrendering my sadness to you so that you can guide me and direct me and lead me on how I stay sad. And so our emotions become indicators on our dashboard that help us recognize we need to go to the Father. When I'm having a day and, and, and I'm responding to my kids in anger about everything, it's easy for me as a dad to be like, yeah, those kids are awful, right? You guys, you know, don't pretend. It's because it's Mother's Day, right? You know, right? And it's easy for me to blame and say, well, if they would act right, if they wouldn't say this, if they wouldn't do that, it's much harder for me to say, you know what? I'm angry today and I'm taking it out on my kids. I had a bad day at work, and now I've brought it home, and now I'm transmitting my pain instead of transforming my pain. Scripture teaches us to transform it, and so we pay attention to all of those things. Uh, I'm, I'm getting in here. Next is we leverage what we have for the sake of others. Uh, there's this long portion here, verses 7 through verse 12, and it says this. I, I took counsel with myself, which I think is funny. I, how many of you have taken counsel with yourself recently <laughs> like it's that moment when you're like all right i just got i just i gotta i gotta get away for a second notice that the anger is followed by taking counsel with yourself isn't that wise right i'm, I'm angry i'm frustrated so i before i react before i send off that email before i fire off this response on social media before i say anything to my wife i'm gonna take counsel with myself for a minute and save myself some trouble in the long run. And then it says, I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. This is so significant. 
Because what Nehemiah has is voice and a power that others don't have. Nehemiah has a big job. He has a big budget. He has that note signed from the king that says he's in charge of all of these things. He has a position of authority and of strength, and he has a voice that the oppressed do not have. He has power that he can leverage for the sake of others. And so he brings charges against the people. He stands up and says, this isn't right what's happening. And I'm going to speak for the people that cannot speak. You cannot take their sons and daughters. That's wrong. Because you want to be rich, you cannot take sons and daughters. You've built a financial structure that is built on oppression, and that's not going to stand. And what happens is the one who has power speaks for the ones who don't have power. And this is this, is this idea that injustice thrives in silence. If we're going to continue to be silent, then injustice will grow and multiply all throughout our world. But we were created to speak. And we can both speak for ourselves and speak for others. And there are certain communities where certain voices are amplified and elevated and other voices are diminished and marginalized. And so when our voices are amplified and when our voices are heard, it is our social responsibility. Can I say it is our gospel responsibility to speak the truth. Speaking the truth to power over and over and over again. There's a female preacher that I love. She's so good. And, and she, does, she, she preached a sermon recently where she brought her son up on stage. And he's a little one. It was like all the, all the little ones that you have here. He was like two or three. And she's holding him. And she told the story about how he keeps hitting everybody. Right? So uh, it's, she wasn't shaming him. It wasn't like, let's pray for my kid. Let's cast this demon out of him. But she was like telling this story of like, my son keeps hitting. And, and, and so she said, I want to show you what I keep doing. And, and she, what she did is she takes his hand and she says, son, I love you. And I want you to know that your hand was made for love. And she did this beautiful thing where she talked to her child in a way that a child could understand it about your hands are made for love. And can I just say, church, our voice was made for love. Can I get an Amen. And it hasn't been used that way in the last year. Am I right? There have been so many ways where our voices have been used to accuse, to battle, to fight, to get after each other. Our voices were actually created for love. And so we actually have to step into a place where we recognize my voice was made to love. And sometimes love means action. Sometimes love means I won't be silent no more anymore. It means that as I discern God's voice calling me to speak, that I have to speak. The prayer above that I read, listen to this, this is, what, this is what I read earlier. It says, I have silenced my tongue. My voice has not been raised in prophetic rebuke and anger. My feet have not stepped out for justice along those who have more courage than I. And in my silence, I am an accomplice. I think that's what I grieve the most over my pastoral ministry over my entire life. I've been a pastor for 25 years, and much of that time I've been an accomplice because I've been silent, because I didn't know how to use my voice for love, because I was afraid. I didn't speak up. The last thing is we repent of our complicity in injustice. This is great. Not only does Nehemiah call all the people in this system to repent, but he recognizes that he has actually been benefiting from this system himself, and he repents over it. 
I called the priests and I made them swear to do as I had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment as a sign of repentance. And I said, so may God shake from every man his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and empty. And all this assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Now listen to this. He goes a step further. He doesn't just say, I'm, I'm going to stop collecting these taxes myself. He goes a step forward further, and it says, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be governor in the land of Judah to the 20th year, to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, for the next 12 years, neither I nor my brothers will eat the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily rations, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I will not do so. Listen, why? Because of fear of the Lord. Here's the system. The governor is getting a lot of good rations. He's living in a better place. He's getting more money. He's propped up by the system that exerts power over the oppressed. And Nehemiah says, oh, no, I've actually been benefiting from that. And no more. No more. I'm actually going to repent from that. I'm going to lead by example. Leaders always go first. They don't ask someone to sacrifice something they're not willing to sacrifice themselves. They recognize that it starts with themselves. And they recognize that corporate transformation always precedes individual transformation. And so if you want to transform a culture, if you want to transform a workplace, you want to transform a community, you want to transform a church, you want to transform a family, it always starts by transforming yourself. It starts with personal repentance. It starts by saying, I'm going to step into the gap and I'm going to do what's right even if nobody else follows me. Even if nobody else goes with me, I'm going to do the right thing because I fear God more than I fear man. Because I, I want to be obedient to him more than I want to be obedient to man. And so repentance is two things. It's naming what's actually happening. Right? We, we don't talk about this. We often talk about repentance is turning, right? It's I was heading in one direction, and I changed my mind and decided to go the other way. But before I can make that turn, I have to actually name what's real. And so I have to name what's actually happening. Scripture teaches us that when we name something, we have what over it? We have power and dominion over it. We have authority over it. And so we name what's going on in our culture. We name what's going on in our hearts. We name what's going on in our churches. And when we do so, we actually begin to have dominion and authority and power over it. That's what real repentance is. It's looking at ourselves, naming what's going on in our own hearts, and then turning and inviting others to come with us. And so this is a hard message. If this is your first Sunday, I'm sorry. We love you. Nehemiah 5 is a hard, it's a hard passage. But here's some questions I want you just to reflect on this week. Are there areas of your life when you've been silent when you should speak? Is there a place like me where you failed to speak up because you're afraid and you should speak up? Is there an area of your life where you failed to really listen with empathy to somebody who you love? Whether that person is oppressed or whether that person is just a family member that's annoying, right? Is there an area of your life where you've just failed to listen and pay attention and seek empathy? And where have you not been stirred to righteous anger where you should be? Is there an area of your life where you've just kind of been complacent? You just haven't gotten riled up about anything. You haven't stepped into it or haven't said, you know what, this actually makes me angry. But Nehemiah 5, I told you guys when we started this book, like this is the actual book on leadership. 
Like Nehemiah actually shows us a play-by-play step to how we become leaders. And in Nehemiah chapter 5, he shows us this is how you become a leader. This is how you seek social justice. You start by listening. You're moved to righteous anger. You use your voice for those who have no voice. And you repent for your complicity in the systems that have been built around you. And so we're going to move into a time of communion. And every time we go to communion, we, we, we take the juice and we take the, the, the wafer and we, we just simply say, thank you, Jesus, for your blood and for your body. And we recognize that Jesus actually came to break down these systems. That Jesus actually came to overthrow the people in power. Listen to this. Listen to this. Like, this is so crazy. Jesus actually died to show that freedom comes through death. He died to overturn the systems of power that would kill and murder and torture someone and show that there's a better way, and that way is love. And so as you take communion, I just want you to think about what's the way of love for me going forward? What's the invitation, Jesus, that you have for me this week so that I can love my community well? And so the band's going to sing, and as they do, you can take communion. If you need the elements, just raise your hand, and one of our folks will grab it for you. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your son, Jesus. I thank you for the model that you've given us in his life. I thank you for your word. I thank you for, for the story of Nehemiah. I thank you for the picture of what it looks like to walk in faithfulness in the midst of cultural wars. And I pray, Lord, that we would be known by our love. But we would also be known for standing for what needs to be stood for, for fighting what needs to be fought and for naming what needs to be named. And so, Holy Spirit of God, we ask you humbly to guide us and direct us, to give us discernment, to give us wisdom. And I pray that what happens out here in the park on Sunday mornings spreads into our community and transforms this community and makes changes and makes a difference in our world around us, Lord. Never let us just preach the gospel without living it. Teach us to live it and to preach it every day. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.